Good morning. I'm Ann Schindler, and this is First Coast Connect. Today, monthly mortgage payments are giving Florida homeowners sticker shock. The ballooning costs are pricing some people out of their comfort zone and even out of their homes. Later in the program, a country music disruptor brings the Black Opry Review to the WJCT soundstage. But first, I'm joined by two experts on matters of home finance. Mortgage consultant Nick Fendig. Welcome, Nick. Hi. And certified real estate lawyer Zachary Roth. Thanks for being here. Yeah, good morning. And to our listeners, have you seen your mortgage payments soar? And are you worried about being able to keep up costs with your increasing escrow? We want to hear from you. Give us a call at 904-549-2937. You can also email us at firstcoastconnect at wjct.org or message us on Facebook, Instagram, or tag us on X. Nick Fendig, as a loan originator, it's your job to help people get mortgages that they can afford. What uh, are people finding now that some of their monthly payments are out of control? What's happening? Uh, it's really, just like you said, kind of a sticker shock. Um, when I got into the industry back in 17, you know, we, were, we would estimate monthly payments for insurance um, about $75 a month, give or take, you know. And now that's really kind of, we budget for about 180, um, give or take, monthly. And the reason being that's happened, unbeknownst to a majority of us, is you know, back in 17, the Florida Supreme Court passed a bill that just made it extremely profitable for attorneys to provide, you know, fight and litigate uh, insurance claims. Uh, insurance has always been an issue in Florida. We have a lot of, you know, storms and things that other states don't have but uh the money that came in back in 17 it it shifted to what's caused the issue and it trickled down to the rest of the homeowners so a lot of people when they go into a home buying process they seek something called a fixed mortgage with the expectation that they're going to have predictable similar payments month to month but for that's not doing that doesn't protect you from the kind of cost increases that people are seeing in their in their escrow needs. No, that's a good point. Um, when we, you know, when we help qualify somebody is helping set expectations and talk about that. Things that happen afterwards uh, and those really, you're, like you said, the escrow, those are things outside of control and those numbers keep changing rapidly. Um, and so it's very hard for right now for anybody trying to buy a home or keep their home um, to know what that's going to look like. And so when you're advising someone that's coming to you looking for a mortgage, what do you tell them about expectations going forward in terms of the affordability of their mortgage? Uh, really, it's, it is just setting proper expectations um, and having that, that consultative approach of asking someone, you know, what, what do you want your payment range to be? Um, and then going from there, if it's a first-time buyer, you know, what their rent has been, um, what their comfort level is, what their pain points are in that that range, and trying your best to give that expectations. Um, and then when it comes to what homes they're looking at, you know, and having asking those hard questions of what's the roof's age, you know, these are other things you're going to need to consider down the road, and and really trying to help guide every aspect. Zachary Roth, as a real estate lawyer, you have some professional knowledge of what's happening, but you also have some personal experience. Explain what you've seen. Yeah. Um, so there's really two factors that play into uh, this increase in, in escrows um, that people are receiving. And one is the insurance, like like was just mentioned. A homestead is another major part. My personal mortgage went up um, about $1,200 a month um, because of homestead mainly um, jumping up from the prior owner to my homestead, reassessment of the value. Um, so that's a combination thing that can kind of really hit people hard because when you first purchase it, you plan on your monthly payments being X, as we discussed. And then when your homestead kicks in, typically the following year, it's probably going to jump way up because of the uh, reassessment if it's been previously homesteaded. And then on top of that, you have the year-to-year -year increases that we're seeing with insurance. And so in the past, maybe it was a one-time jump that you would get with that reassessment of homestead. But now you have the big jump and then the constant jumps on top of it. So it's a really kind of a double whammy almost on people. And for people who have an expectation of what their mortgage is going to be this year, next year, years to come, it really has become a lot less of a certain thing. Absolutely. Um, especially with insurance, you know, with homestead there's and property taxes, there's ways you can kind of guess where it's going to be. You know, they use certain um, 
analyses to determine what market value is going to be, what the assessed value will be. So you can maybe back into that a little bit to at least give you a ballpark. But with insurance, it's it's completely unpredictable. So there's no way sitting here on February 6th that I can know next year what that invoice is going to be when it comes in, um, especially because if we have a storm this fall, for example, it could completely change what rates are in our area. Um, we've got a call. Mark, good morning. Welcome to First Coast Connect. Good morning. Thank you all. Um, I have progressive, excuse me, have progressive insurance. I live in Mandarin. My assessed uh, value is about two fifty. Market value about three hundred twenty thousand. My premium went from twenty five hundred to six thousand sixty one dollars with uh, literally a ten day notice. And now, fortunately, after going uh, through multiple denials, I'm now with Citizens at three thousand and fifty one dollar premium. Um, uh, this is, of course, concerning. I feel like there's I and many other uh, homeowners in Florida are have no recourse. Um, even when we get inspections and four points that say, hey, this roof is good for six more years, the insurance companies have this ability legally after 10 years, uh, I believe, to require certain things or, or put uh, burdens onto homeowners. Uh, two other things. Um, this is happening under uh, A.G. Moody's watch. She's she's planning on running for governor. If, 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 you know, the, the worst kept secret. She's going to run. And this is happening on her watch, and we need to hold her accountable. Um, additionally, I think that this begs for a look at, for city council and other cities to look at, why are we burdening homeowners with basically the taxes? The number one way for government to, to get their money is through millage rates and also for the school board. And that's putting the burden of, of basically fund our infrastructure and funding services to the city on homeowners. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Um, so this citizen's property insurance was meant to be, you know, the insurer of last resort, meaning that it was supposed to be priced higher than the market value because um, they didn't want to be in the business of subsidizing people's insurance. Um, but that's changed right now. People are finding that in the insurance company that the state provides citizens is actually often cheaper. He said about half as much as his, his insurance rate oh, was. I, I have clients all the time. They in purchasing, once they're in a contract, they start with citizens. They don't end with citizens. They start with them. Um, I know as a homeowner myself, uh, you know, citizens have been trying to get rid of us and our, I'm just like that gentleman. My roof's got 15 years on it. It's a fine, it was a perfectly done rehabbed home and citizens can't get rid of us. We, and we've done nothing wrong. Everything's been updated in the home. So yeah, it's, it is a bit of a mess. What does it look like when you say they're trying to get rid of you? Uh, so the, Citizens has the ability to, if another insurer can take on the burden, if it's in a certain cost um, transfer, and everybody else wants to charge way too much that we, we kind of can't end up. Uh, the last bill we saw um, was about two or three grand more um, a year. So, and we just, we've kind of ended up with citizens like a lot of the state. We're talking about rising uh, costs of home mortgages, and we're taking your questions. You can call us at 904-549-2937. You can also reach out on social media, or you can email firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. Um, Zach, as a, a attorney that handles real estate, there are a lot of claims now about, you know, attorneys having a role in, you know, litigation that's raising the cost of people's insurance. Um, and there's been a lot of, you know, legislative initiatives to try to dial that back. How would you say, how would you assess the status of that right now? And, and is that something that you believe is a primary contributor? I think it definitely is a primary contributor. I believe I read something last year that said 15% of all insurance claims nationwide are in Florida. 70% of all insurance lawsuits are in the state of Florida, which is a crazy disparity, which shows that there's some incentive for those lawsuits to happen. I know there was some efforts made last year um, and the year before to kind of rein in assignment of benefits and other um, concepts that give rise to those, that create incentives for cases like that to move forward. But what I don't see and haven't seen yet is a real initiative on the insurance side. You see this, the activity on the litigation side, trying to limit the litigation, but what you don't see are regulations on the insurance and the rates and the increases and that kind of stuff. And that's what I would hope to see more of, too, is to attack it from both sides to help give the citizens of the state um, some relief. When I started doing closings, you know, eight years ago or whatever it was, 
maybe we saw citizens every now and then. Now I would say that more than half of our closings, citizens is the insurer because the private insurance is just so expensive. So the cost of insurance um, is obviously going up um, in part because of storms, the intensity of storms in Florida. Um, FEMA redid its flood maps in 2022, and that put a lot of people who previously didn't need flood insurance or weren't in a quote-unquote flood zone. Now they have to have that insurance. Um, and it's my understanding that that some people aren't even contacted. Like the mortgage holder, um, whatever bank that is, just purchases the uh, flood insurance and doesn't really shop around necessarily for the client. So they get hit with a bill that they didn't really even know was coming. No, I've heard it happening. Um, yeah, and it is something that the a lender can do, same as if insurance gets dropped. Uh, the lender themselves will put forced coverage. And again, same thing as it's not getting shopped and it can be quite expensive uh, to the homeowner. We got a comment from Brittany on Facebook. She says, we purchased an older mobile home and land in Putnam County after being priced out of Clay County. Our mortgage jumped from $850 upon purchase to $1,100 from 2021 till now. We didn't take it into account, and now we're pinching pennies. Um, talk a little bit, if you can, Zachary, about how people can anticipate, even though these costs seem somewhat out of uh, the realm of imagination. Well, in terms of the insurance, I think the best you could do is is to just plan on it going up and build in for budgetary purposes some expectation that each year it's going to go up by some percentage. You could probably speak to insurance agents who can tell you how much they've seen them going up so you can kind of get an idea how much to budget. On the taxes side, that's a little bit easier uh, because what's going to happen is Homestead applies as of January 1st of every year. So if you purchase in February and your seller had homestead, you're going to have the benefit of that seller's homestead through the rest of that year. So if it was this year, through the rest of 2024, where you're going to have the reassessment is in 2025, whenever it's your taxes, you can use what you paid for it. And I would say back out about 20% of what you paid for it. And that's probably a pretty good predictor of where you're going to be in terms of your assessed value when it's reassessed. And then from there, you can calculate the difference in the taxes based on what they were paying as the taxable value versus what you'll be paying as the taxable value and get an idea of what that jump is going to be again so you can pre-budget for that uh, because you can do that math at least generally now and you won't have that payment until next year. And so there, not everybody knows necessarily you know, what homesteading is, but basically that is a claim that you can make that you're going to occupy the property as your primary residence. And it gives you a couple of benefits. Um, why don't you just tell us briefly what those benefits are in terms of tax savings? Absolutely. So so Homestead is the most powerful thing in real estate in Florida for homeowners. It's, it's a huge uh, protection. There's other benefits beyond the taxes, but for these purposes, there are two really large, actually three really large tax benefits. One is that the first $25,000 of assessed value is is gone, is automatically free. And then once you get 50000 in assessed value, the next twenty five dollars is also gone. So for example, if a home is assessed at $75,000, it will actually only be taxed at $25,000 because you'll get that $50,000 discount. If it's assessed at $250,000, you only pay $200,000 worth of taxes. That's one major benefit. Another is that your increases in your taxes are capped at 3%. When I say increases in taxes, the assessed value. If the government entities raise the millage rate, that could increase it more, but the assessed value can only go up 3%. So if it's assessed at 100000 in year one, it can only be assessed at 103000 in year two, even if the appraiser says it's worth 150000 So that's a major benefit. And then a third benefit is what's called portability, which is the ability to carry that protection that you've accrued in your existing home over to a new home. So say you buy it for 100000 and after five years, you're at 115000 because of the 3% cap, but the actual value is 200000 Well, now you've built up an $85,000 portability benefit that you can carry over to your next home. So say you buy another home for 200000 you carry that eighty-five over, and you get your 50000 So now you have $135,000 in discounts off your assessed value. Significant. We've got a call, uh, Max from Jacksonville. Good morning. Welcome to First Coast Connect. Good morning. My neighbor had a 
an increase in his homeowner's insurance, and his agent told him to get a home inspection, and they did that. The home inspection was favorable, so they sent that to the insurance company to challenge the increase, and they were able to get their homeowner's insurance reduced significantly. And I wonder if all insurance companies um, do that, and if you, if your panel there can speak to that topic, and I'll get off the line. Thank you. Thanks, Max. Is that something you're familiar with? Um, I know uh, as a homeowner, uh, we had to get home inspection, and um, yeah, that is something you can do. Uh, it's just like anything in life. You can always shop your insurance. Uh, you know, once your escrows are reassessed, I check in with my clients uh, yearly, ask if they have seen any increase, uh, absolutely advise them to shop. Yes, it might in- include paying for a home inspection, uh, wind mitigation checks, all of those things. But again, in the if it can help you save the money, it'll pay for itself. And about how much does a home inspection cost? Um, last I've seen is anywhere from 150 to 250 depending on the size of the home. So it could be well worth it. Yeah. We've got a call. Um, Alex, I think he wants to talk about something that you raised a moment ago, Zach. Good morning, Alex. Uh, yes, good morning. I uh, just wanted to uh, bring up, you talked about wanting to regulate the insurance carriers more uh, just to, to reel in the, those increases. Uh, but my concern is in Florida, we've seen so many insurance carriers go belly up because they've not been able to make it or become profitable. And if we keep throttling them, then we're just going to have more carriers go away and more policies go to the insurance insurance carrier of last resort citizens. So uh, going back to that legislation that, in, that incentivize attorney's fees, is there anything going on there more? Because I think that's really the root cause. Thank you. Zachary, in terms of regulations, I mean, you were saying, you know, you'd like to see more regulation on the insurance side. Is there something in particular? And to to Alex's point, I mean, we are already seeing this this huge exodus of insurance companies um, either limiting new policies or leaving the state altogether, determining it's too high of a risk. I don't think the idea of just setting caps is really uh, workable because of what what he just mentioned. I think going back to to Max's point about the idea of the inspection reducing the ultimate rate, I think it's building in more ways of the public to understand why the rate is what it is and tying it to these different factors in the home, um, inspections of home. If you have, you know, a new roof, what that, how that's going to impact it. I think that's where you have to attack it is creating more transparency and why the rates are what they are, because it seems like based on Max's call, if you, uh, have a new inspection and then all of a sudden the rate changes, the owner probably didn't understand what they could have maybe done on the front end to repair the home to reduce that rate initially. I think that's really where it is. Now, I'm not a legislator, so I, you know, am not here to put it on paper what it is, but I think a more workable solution is having an understanding of what reduces rates, what increases rates, and having some sort of guidance there to help homeowners understand and take proactive steps to protect themselves. The reality, though, in some ways, is that the challenge is perhaps so great in terms of flood risk, storm damage risk. Um, You know, we're seeing even reinsurance companies, you know, getting out of the insurance business in Florida, just having assessed it as, you know, too vulnerable to sea level rise. Um, So is there is there a a real I mean, transparency is, is great in terms of, you know, understanding what you can do. But if there really is nothing you can do, um it's it may be hard for an insurance company to offer a, a, a you know a way into lowering those rates. Yeah, that's I think it's important that we don't stop attacking it from the one side of are there things that that are happening in various industries and I'm not going to place all the blame on att- attorneys it's easy for an attorney <laughs> to say but I think there are contractors out there that are taking advantage of the law that are really putting owners in situations where they don't have a choice but to file litigation. You know, they may come and say, hey, we can get you a new roof from your insurer. It's not going to cost you anything. Why don't you let us put a new roof on? They put a new roof on and the insurer denies the claim. Well, now the owner ends up with a construction lien from the contractor says, well, you're going to pay me the way I gave you a new roof. The owner doesn't really have a choice but to chase the insurance money now because they thought they were getting a roof covered by insurance and they're being told they're not. Um, so I think that's a, a thing that, that we could also analyze is, is more... Um, 
regulation on that side to prevent that. I think there are other outside the box ways of doing it. For example, to especially you mentioned flood insurance, Neptune Beach recently uh, adopted some new ordinances that resulted in it increasing its flood rating with FEMA and citywide flood insurance rates are going to go down because of ordinances that the government passed. So there may also be ways of local governments working with FEMA, working with the state to find, are there changes to ordinances, things like that, that will also help reduce rates. What is the deal with roofs? I mean, that is kind of the one thing that you always hear. You know, people are being required to put on new roofs. They won't be insurable if they don't put on a new roof. But then there was kind of this whole you know, door-to-door scam where people were like, we can get you a free roof. Don't worry about it. And so everybody's got new roofs and the costs have just been skyrocketing. Was that the change that you were talking about in 2017 that kind of opened the door for some uh, of these rates to rise? Not necessarily. Uh, In 17, the the Supreme Court, uh, Florida Supreme Court passed the bill basically allowing the fees of litigation to increase dramatically. Uh, The in terms of roofs, that's just something policy, you know, insurance insurance is there for. You can file a claim uh, if there's been quote unquote damage. And so, you know, while I we wouldn't call it hail like we know in other states, but we have hailstorms. Well, that counts as damage, and that can file a claim. And so, yeah, that has been a common tactic uh, that I've heard of over the years by roofers um, to, you know, but they're just using the system as is. We've got a call, AJ from Arlington. Good morning, AJ. Welcome to First Coast Connect. Good morning. My question is, uh, I'm a homeowner, but some of my friends that are homeowners have uh, said they can't afford private insurance, so they have went to uh, lender place insurance. Could you uh, maybe tell the listeners the difference between lender place and uh, regular insurance? Lender place insurance? So the lender place is i mean just like anything is that they can force coverage um now that's the first i've heard that people can't afford the current private private market uh insurance and so that for you know the lenders own placed insurance is cheaper that explain what that is though i'm not sure i understand what lenders place insurance even is uh so the lender just essentially has their own insurance that they can force coverage on um, so one thing that we would see sometimes um, or I would hear is that a uh, client goes and purchases a home, closes escrow. Well, they did their four-point inspection. They did everything. And then you know, a month or two later, all of a sudden, their insurance carrier uh, gets dropped. And unbeknownst, uh, and it's kind of a crazy thing to learn, is uh, the insurance companies themselves really do their due diligence post-close. So they'll see... A home essentially their home inspector go out um, sometimes jump on a ladder but if they can tell it from street side they'll do their inspection send it and the insurance carrier will drop it and so then the lender to protect the collateral uh, because that is a responsibility of the homeowner as well if the documents they sign is that they'll keep insurance to protect it the lender will then go and get policy and force it on and is a lender is that a higher cost insurance typically yes uh, and that's and now the homeowner, even in that situation, can still go get a, uh, you know, use a home inspection and go shop it privately. Um, but that may require, you know, if it was dropped, say, for the roof, that means they would have to go and get the roof replaced. And now they don't have insurance to file a claim. And so it creates a very you know dangerous cycle. We've got a call, Naomi, from Jacksonville. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Naomi. You there, Naomi? Oh, hi. My question. Yeah, I'm here. Hi, my my question is about condominiums. Um, It sounded like you said earlier, it's the homeowner's responsibility to shop insurance prices and to find out on the front end what could be done to lower the cost or make sure that anything that might lower the cost is done um, and then have an inspection. But where there is a property management company involved, isn't it their responsibility to shop it and find out what could be done so that, well, I mean, they're, in our case, it's 56 different owners. So you don't want us all shopping and um, individually. Doesn't yeah. the property management have an obligation? Thanks. Good question. Thanks. Um, Zach, what is the situation when it's a property management? Yeah, so condominiums are an entirely different animal because of the way they're regulated by statute. Uh, there are very specific insurance requirements in Florida law, Chapter 718, that require insurers to carry or 
the condominium association to carry that. Now, a condominium association is nothing but the collect, collection of the members, the individual unit owners, but it's managed by a board of directors made up of those unit owners. Um, and so most of the onus in that situation falls on that board of directors who often then delegate that authority day-to-day to property managers. Um, and so in terms of, of how you make sure that property manager is shopping rates, doing what they're doing, that's really oversight from the board of directors is the most important aspect of that is making sure that you don't have passive board members. You have active board members. They don't have to be overly active, but not just taking the word of the property management company. If you have concerns, if the property management company has been doing a great job, there's no reason to go dig and, and try to create a fight that's not there. But the role of the board of directors is to ensure that those things are happening, ensure with an E, um, that those things are happening, including the insurance, because it is so critical because a condominium is nothing more than a box of air. So really all the building, the structure, the roof, that's all the association's responsibility. So that insurance really is critical um, in those scenarios. We've got an email um, from Jay saying, my homeowner's insurance premium has increased 60% every year for the past four years. I'm looking for a second job now because if the trend continues, it will be up to 10 thousand dollars this year. I have not made any claims and the insurance carrier reported profits of almost $300 million to their investors last year. I would love any suggestions. I'm drowning. Uh, first and foremost is, uh, have you done a home inspection? Um, what are the issues? 90% of the time it can be tracked to um, roof, uh, AC age, hot water heater. Those are the three biggies for homeowners. Um, another thing too with insurance is there is obviously everyone has a fear of filing claim and losing insurance, but when an insurer goes to, you know, write a policy, it's not just the individual themselves they're evaluating, but also the neighborhood itself. What's the claim history in that area? Could, oh, so interesting. it's the neighbors as well. Um, and that history, I mean, if there's, you know, for example, if you were in Fort Lauderdale where there was, you know, tornado damage or hurricane damage, you know, that there's a history there. You know, the insurer knows and can track. Um, but, you know, any homeowner where they're seeing rises, um, it's it can be really worth it because then you can go and shop it. Then you have proof of what's going on. Um, and, Zach, I just wanted to ask you because we're talking about insurance. You also mentioned the issue with taxes. Um, and, you know, especially when you're buying a home that's been homesteaded for a long, long time when you purchase it and then you're going to see those rates jump at least initially until you can establish your own homestead capping those increases. But how do you tell people to prepare for that um, and to be aware of that when they're buying a home? Should they be looking at homes that were more recently sold or is the taxable value still going to benefit you because it was capped way, way back? So the cap from the seller is not going to benefit you at all. In fact, it's going to exacerbate the problem because if they haven't had a cap for a long time or they don't have a cap at all, your proration at closing and then the escrow amount that you're going to establish initially is going to be fairly accurate. Where you really have these massive jumps in the taxes is when you've had a property homesteaded for a long time. People may say, how am I supposed to know whether they've had it homesteaded for a long time or not? Florida actually is is relatively unique in that we have so much documentation available online with our property appraisers. You can go back, Duval County, St. John's County, Clay County, they all have this. Uh, you can go back and see the sales history and you can see um, when that seller purchased the property. You can find the deed if you really want to look at it. Um, it'll tell you how long they've lived in it. It'll tell you what exemptions they have on it for a tax purposes. It can tell you what the just market value is and what the assessed value is. So if you look at a property, you're interested in it, you pull it up and you see that it has a just market value of $600,000 and an assessed value of $150,000. Well, now you know when you buy it, it's probably going to jump way up because they're not going to change that just market value down. It's probably going to go up because chances are the purchase price you're going to pay is probably actually more than the just market value that the property appraiser puts on the property. So that's a very good way. In Duval County, that's a, right at the top under the name. It's a really easy way to look it up very quickly, and you can search by property address. Yeah, you can just plug in the address of the property that you're Absolutely. interested in. Well, there's so much to talk about on this topic, and uh, we really appreciate both of you being here to help us break some of it down. Um, I'm sure we'll be talking about it again. Uh, I've been speaking with mortgage, mortgage consultant Nick Fendig and real estate attorney Zachary Roth. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. And up next, diversifying country music with the founder of the Black Opry. I remember 
daddy listen to Merle and Charlie pry most every day. He'd get up every morning. That's when I would hear the music play. I heard mama tried as anybody going to San Antonio Silver Wings. But I was just too young to understand long for daddy's dream. Daddy's dream was somewhere down the line. But I had to go through life and pain to really make it mine. And Welcome back. She's a self-described country music disruptor. We're joined by the founder of the Black Opry, which performs on the WJCT soundstage February 15th at 7 p.m., Holly G., welcome to First Coast Connect. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for being here. And if you have questions, you can give us a call at 904-549-2937. You can email First Coast Connect at wjct.org, or you can message us on Facebook, Instagram, or tag us on X. Holly G., tell us, why did you decide to create the Black Opry, the Black Opry Review? What need did you see? Um, well, it came from just me being a huge fan of country music and I've lived it all my life and I've not seen people that look like me represented uh, on the stage and not in the audience either and so I created it to connect with other people that look like me that love country music and I was attempting to reach fans but I was so pleasantly surprised when I found so many artists um, that were making country music and needed a platform because nobody was paying attention to them. So we've been able to, to fill in that gap. So you're not a performer yourself, is my understanding, but you're a music critic and a writer. What was your experience with country music as a fan or, or even as a professional? Well, I did not start writing until I started, until uh, I launched Black Opry. I was <laughs> writing so that I could pay to keep the website up, basically. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, before I started doing this work, uh, my interaction with country music was very limited um, other than listening to it. It, it does not feel safe um, as a Black queer woman to go into some of these spaces that uh, country music fans have created. And uh, it's just another reason why it's so important that we exist so we could try to help make those spaces safer so that people that don't look like the typical country music fan can go and enjoy these events as well. You know, it's interesting. Our producer here has a, a program that she puts together annually called uh, Queer Country Disco for the same reason, which is, you know, creating a space that feels safe to people who maybe don't feel safe when they go or perhaps welcomed when they go to see country music. Um, what kind of personal experience did you have with that? I, I saw in one article uh, about you that for instance, you wanted to go to a Miranda Lambert com- concert. Yeah, I had bought tickets to see her like five times, and then I would never go because I couldn't find anybody that would be willing to go with me. Um, and when you look at the people that typically support that kind of music and there's Confederate flags and all that kind of stuff, it just doesn't feel like a safe place to go alone. Um, and so unfortunately, I wasn't able to participate in the music that I love so much. So it is a, a fan experience, but it's also an experience of Black country artists, Black folk artists. Um, it, it's my understanding that only 1% of Black artists played on country music in the last 20 years, that only 1% of the music on, you know, country music radio stations is from Black artists. Yeah, that was uh, figured out by Dr. Data Watson, who did, uh, she did a study called the Red Lighting Report, where she studied representation representation in country music over a span of 20 years and um, I think it was like 0.1% actually. Oh wow. Um, And so their numbers are just really low and every time like I mean if you look at black artists the numbers low but then if you look at black women it's lower if you look at queer black people it's even lower and so we try really hard to um, make sure that we are being intersectional in our approach as well. Um, and just try to get as many voices out there as we can. And, you know, as far as shows, though, we only um, play with Black artists, but, you know, we do a lot of things with the community as well. We try to be 
a safe space for anybody who loves this music and does not feel welcome. And the Black Opry has shown that there is obviously no shortage of Black country and Americana artists. How many do you work with? How many typically perform when you are doing tours? So we have like a database of about 200, um, probably a little over that now, artists that we have to pull from when we um, have shows. And each show has between three and five different performers. Um, And the cool thing about our shows is you can go to um, as many as you want and you'll never see the same show twice because we change the lineup for every show. Um, And so there's always different artists, always telling different stories. And, you know, it's also breaking down that stereotype of what people think of when they do think of uh, Black country music, which is typically only... Darius Rucker. Um, there's so much diversity just within the community um, of different styles and sounds and stories. And it's always a really good mix of different perspectives. I'm curious, just because it's kind of news that was happening this week um, with Tracy Chapman, who, um, you know, I think has been described as a variety of different kinds of artists, but I think of her certainly as having that kind of folk element. Um, and, you know, the fact that her song was some would say, you know, covered and others might say appropriated, but, you know, that, that the recognition for that song went to a male white artist as opposed to her at the CMAs. Um, they, of course, performed together this week at the Grammys. But do you, what are your feelings on on that evolution of that song and, and her role in it? Um, so I, the whole thing really to me um, is more so about what it illustrates as opposed to the actual song itself or anything that Luke Combs has done. Um, that is the first time that a Black songwriter has uh, been at the top of the country radio charts, and it only happened because there was a white man singing her song. Uh, you can argue whether or not she even wanted to be considered country. I don't think that matters very much. If you do listen to the cover, Luke didn't really change the arrangement very much. So if that is can be considered a country song when he sings it. It should have been able to be considered a country song when she sang it. And also, there's so many uh, Black queer women that are making country music and not getting acknowledged. Um, So it would just be really nice to see people be able to sing their own music and be successful with that in the industry. We're talking with Holly G. of Black Opry, which is going to be in town next week. You can give us a call at 904-549-2937 or send an email to firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. We'd love to hear you if you're a Black country music fan or a Black country music performer. Um, Holly, what kind of challenges or pushback have you received um, on this project, and how have you addressed them? Um, You know, I feel like we we do get a lot of pushback, but for me, it's not worth the effort to acknowledge or pay very much attention to it because we've also gotten so much support. Um, I, I don't think that I've ever had an experience where so many people rallied around something so passionately and so quickly. I mean, we just launched this project in 2021 and it was only intended to be a website, but it ended up growing into this huge tour because there was just a need for it. Um, and so for every one person that, you know, has an issue with what we're doing, I get asked all the time, well, what if they made a white opera? And I'm like, well, they have one. That's why we had to make the black one <laughs> because they're not letting us into that one. <laughs> gotcha. um, and so I just kind of ignore those people and focus on the fact that, you know, we have been able to put these artists in a position where their lives are being changed. Um, and that's really important to me. So, And who are some of the artists that have performed with the Black Opry Review? What are some moments that you have, maybe some favorite, favorite moments um, of the, of the tour? Um, I will say, I think one of my favorite standout moments was we were uh, headed to play Pilgrimage Fest uh, here in Franklin, Tennessee. Um, and we were on the golf cart, and I got my phone rang, and we were like, hey, this is Alicia Keys' manager. She wants you to come sing with her tonight. And I was like, there is no way this is real. <laughs> uh, but it did end up being real. We got to go, and the artist got to play with her and sing with her on stage, and it was um, just such a cool moment seeing, you know, a Black artist that I grew up listening to 
and respect so much, embrace the project and support it um, in such a memorable way. That's an exciting moment. I mean, so this is something that it's not just that you're reaching out to Black artists and performers about this project. They're also just reaching out to be a part of it. Yeah, that was, I, I she said she got my phone number from uh, Brandy Carlisle, which is also insane because I'm like, happy. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, it's been, you know, it's one of the things that I talk about a lot. It's it's only works because there have been so many people that have been, you know, gracious and kind enough to um, speak positively as, about us in rooms where they were powerful people. Powerful people. Uh, the first festival we played was Newport Folk Fest, which is, I mean, insane for that to be our festival debut. But we were able to do that because Allison Russell stood up for us and advocated for us to be there. Um, and so that's something that I try to do anytime I get an opportunity is to advocate for other people because that's how it's been able to work for us to, to have so much success with this project. Can we talk just briefly about the lineup that we are going to be uh, hosting here at the WJCT Soundstage on February 15th? What can we expect from that performance? Um, well, again, like the cool thing is it'll be a show that nobody's ever seen before. Um, I think we've got some of the performers that have been with us since the very beginning on that show as well as some newer ones um and one of the most special things about a black opry show is um not only are you you know getting to enjoy the music and the stories behind the music but you're able to see this camaraderie that these artists build and sometimes they're building that in the moment on stage and um it's just really special to to see what community um can bring to music are there plans for the Black Opry in terms of, you know, a future educational component or any expansion of the current, you know, setup and mission? Yeah, for sure. We're trying to figure out. Um, that's one of the big things because I now have like all of this access to all of these these people um, in the industry. I think it's so important, important to figure out how to translate um, that access and the knowledge that I'm able to gain from all these people as many folks as possible. Um, it's really difficult being an independent artist. There is no guidebook or anything like that. Um, and so we did, we started with a residency program last year that we put together with WXP and up in Philadelphia. And we were able to put uh, five artists through a six-week pro six program. Uh, we were able to pay them for their time, provide them with mentors. Um, and then it all culminated with a performance at a, uh, World Cafe, which is really, really great. Um, we're, we're always looking for different ways to kind of put things together to create resources for artists. Um, a lot of it is just very informal. Um, it, artists just reach out to me for whatever they need. And, you know, we try to provide as much as we can. <laughs> um, uh, well, I do have I just, one person that helps me, but for the most part, I'm a one woman show, so. Well, we uh, thank you for joining us, Holly G. It's been great to hear about the project, and uh, we look forward to the show on February 15th. Doors uh, at 7. The show starts at 8. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. It was great talking to you. You as well. We'll be right back with what's on stage at the Lumen Repertory Theater. And if my song outsings me May you see the end of war. Yeah. May you see the end. I'm right about the times when we sat down at the table. Waiting for not long ago, drones were only used by the most advanced militaries. Now, armed groups all over the world have them. These drones really kind of allow groups that traditionally haven't had much of a power base to harness a new level of lethality. I'm Carolyn Beeler. How drones made their way onto the modern battlefield next time on The World. This afternoon at 3, here on WJCT News 89.9. In 2021, NASA proved that human beings can still do big things when they flew a helicopter on Mars. Altimeter data confirms that Ingenuity has performed its first flight. 
Ingenuity lasted longer and sent back more data than anyone ever expected, so we'll talk about all we can learn from the little copter that could. That's on the next On Point. Today at 11 on WJCT News 89.9. I'm Robin Young. Police are stopping the public now from using real police scanners, in part because criminals are listening. When the police were called, the bank robbers opened fire on them. They knew where they were arriving. But what about news gatherers? It is a public service to inform my fellow community members. Next time, here and now. Today at 2 on WJCT News 89.9. It's American Heart Month. Heart disease is the leading cause of death for American women, and women are twice as likely than men to die after a heart attack. Next time on 1A, our In Good Health series shines a spotlight on women's cardiovascular health. What are the best practices for preventing heart disease and heart attacks? We pose your health questions to the experts. That's next time on 1A from WAMU and NPR. Today, starting at 10 on WJCT News 89.9. Welcome back. The stage is heating up at Lumen Repertory Theater. Their 2024 season starts next Friday at San Marco Church with playwright Adam Bach's drama, A Small Fire. Here with a behind-the-scenes look is Lumen's artistic director, Brian Neese, and actress, Brooks Ann Hayes. Welcome both. Thank you. Thanks, Ann. Yeah, we're glad, to, we're glad to have you. So Lumen's theme for the 2024 season is bold. Uh, why is that? What, and what can audiences expect from your lineup this year? Well, there's going to be bold content, uh, fresher content like this play, A Small Fire, uh, by the OB winner, Adam Bach. Uh, it's, it's bold because uh, it's not just a kitchen drama. Uh, it's a kitchen sink drama. You know, there, there are things that you don't expect happening. And it's bold in the way we're approaching it because we're treating it like a film, but it's a film that you're viewing in a theater setting. And so tech, light, and sound will be very film-like, cinema-esque. And then the rest of our content we're bringing back, uh, later this year we're bringing back uh, our Shakespeare productions, which is Improvised Shakespeare in Breweries, which was a huge hit last year, and we're retooling it with a new cast and, and doing some cool stuff. This is the Shakespeare. This is Shakespeare, yeah. Shakespeare. Yeah. And if you think you don't like theater, you think you don't like beer, come and you'll end up liking both. Uh, Brooks Ann Hayes, um, without giving away too much, and this is a, a really interesting plot, and as you were saying earlier, a very challenging role. Talk a little bit about uh, your involvement in this, your decision to participate, um, and what kind of challenges it's presented. Well, um, Brian asked me a, a while ago to do this, and I was all in for it. And then time went by, and I read the script several times. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. I, there is no way I can do this. Because it is challenging, and it's bold. And um, after I spoke with Brian, after I dropped out, I realized, you know, the reasons why I'm not doing this are the reasons why I should do this. Because it is a challenge. Um, she is not through the entire play, but she becomes deaf and blind and can still speak. And so she can never look at anyone. Um, she has to, she can't hear anyone. So their communication with her is just through hand squeezing, you know? And so it, it is a challenge, um, to just have to do the physicality of that. Has it been rewarding? Extremely, extremely rewarding. Sometimes you got to push yourself in directions that you don't really think you should, or you would be right for in parts. And that's what I'm doing. Brian, is this a, a play that you had seen performed, or is it just one that you read and, and liked a lot? Uh, it's one I read and didn't like a lot, <laughs> the first read. And then I Wh read it why? slower. Well, because it, it's so quick. It, it, it's basically, it is a film. I mean, it's written to be filmed, even though it's a play, and it won some awards as a play. It's just over an hour long. Yeah, you, you, you read it, and if you're thinking traditionally about theater, you'll miss it. And I think that's what I was doing. And so when I read it again, I was like, oh, this is why this is bold. This is why this is unique. And this is exactly why it's the kind of thing Lumen Rep Theater should be doing. And so um, tell us a little bit about the idea of Lumen and, you know, what foundationally it stands for, what mm -hmm. it aims to do, and when it was founded. So it was founded the very end of uh, 20. 
22. And last year we just completed our inaugural season. But it was founded because until Lumen Rep came around, Northeast Florida did not have a fully professional repertory theater company. Um, in an area this big in greater Jacksonville, we, we have a great film community, great visual arts, uh, ballet, symphony, all on a professional level. We didn't have a professional theater company that was a repertory company. So we wanted to change that. We wanted to give a place that where artists, craftspeople, technicians are paid for their work and they have a safe working environment and so forth. So that's the idea behind it. But also to do pieces that, as this season says, are bold, can be subversive, can be challenging, um, but also the quality will always be exceptional. You'll know that even if you may not like the content and be challenged by it, you're going to be like, but they did a really good job. Wow. I uh, was reading about a review of this in the New York Times because this was an off-Broadway play, right. um, and it sounded like there was at least one scene that's maybe really difficult to watch. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, if it's the scene I think you're talking about toward the end of the play, we've taken a very um, tasteful, uh, made-for-TV movie type approach, which will still be a little uncomfortable, but we don't want to deter from the fact that this play is actually about those bridges that just don't burn between human relationships, between people who are trying to reconnect with each other. And so we don't want to distract from the inner life of these characters by putting something from their outer life right in front of your face. And honestly, we're both older actors. Ain't nobody <laughs> wanting to come us come see us doing anything. <laughs> You know, that would make them. Yeah. Yeah. But this but this is a character exploration of a woman who's very closed off in some ways mm -hmm. and then is sort of forced to rediscover mm -hmm. and reconnect when she's losing her senses. Right. She loses her senses, but she gains so much more. Mm -hmm. Well, Brian Neese and Brooks Ann Hayes, thank you so much for being here. Um, I know that this is going to be a great performance and we really appreciate what you're doing in the community. Glad to be here. Be sure to come out February 16th at Historic San Marco Church. Thank you so much, Anne. Thank you for being here. And that's our program. We welcome your feedback and suggestions for future conversations. And if you missed anything, you can catch the rebroadcast at 8 o'clock tonight or find today's show at wjct.org and on your favorite podcast platform. Our executive producer is David Luckin. Our producer is Stacey Bennett. Kathy Waterman is our associate producer and our director is Brady Corum. Join us tomorrow. We'll be talking about what's happening in the legislature now that the governor is back in town. I'm Ann Schindler. You've been listening to First Coast Connect on WJCT News 89.9. Support for First Coast Connect is provided by Baptist Health and the North Florida TPO.